Well, it's a joy for me to be with you uh, this morning during this joyful season. And I, I was thinking about seasons in the past. And uh, we were just conferring down here with the three of us. I was trying to remember an old series that we did years ago. Some of you might remember this. Uh, I think it was called Advent Conspiracy. And we were trying to talk about the, kind of the upside-down Christmas. And I remember that year being challenged personally by the consumerism of, Christian, of Christmas. And so we decided as a family to do several things differently uh, that Christmas. And one of them was we weren't just going to spend a bunch of money on a bunch of gifts and give those to each other in, in the normal way. And so that year, I, uh, it's kind of become infamous in my family, um, I bought my mom a goat. It's her favorite Christmas gift ever, she said. I bought her a goat. And maybe you know what I'm, I'm talking about. Heifer International, the RCA, they have the opportunity for you to buy like a goat or chickens for somebody in another country. Uh, one of our mission partners, India, one of our mission partners, uh, they do this through the RCA and you can, you can buy some stuff. So anyway, I bought my mom a goat, uh, but I gave it to somebody else, you know, around the world for Christmas. Sometimes you do things differently at Christmas, right? I mean, sometimes you're like, ah, we don't want to do the thing this year, so let's all buy white elephants or let's, you know, you do something a little bit different. And we're doing something different this year at Christmas. Uh, you, you don't go back and, you know, meet with your friends during the week and say like, hey, what, what, what did, did you guys talk about at church this week? Well, of course, we talked about Luke and we talked about the birth narrative. And you're like, yeah, well, we talked about the arrest last week. And, you know, we're in like the, the end of Jesus' life, right? So here at Fairhaven and the other Harvard churches, we're taking a little different uh, approach to Christmas year. Maybe you've uh, heard this phrase before, begin with the end in mind. Well, hopefully... Every Christmas, we begin with the end in mind, because Christmas just isn't about uh, the fun stories about babies and about gifts and about sentimentality and all that. Uh, Jesus came because of the end of the story, which becomes the new beginning, right? The death and the resurrection. And we've been in Matthew. If you're new here, um, part of the reason we're in this is because we've been in the book of Matthew all year long. And we're coming to the conclusion of that. So we're kind of coming to the end as we hit the beginning, because endings are beginnings and beginnings are endings. And so we're looking at Christmas through the narrative of the end of Jesus' life. And last week, Greg walked us through the stories of failure in Matthew 26, particularly of Peter and Judas, mostly on on Peter and noticing, you know, in the garden when um, when Jesus asked the disciples to pray and they fall asleep, Peter, James and John, not just Peter, uh, they fail. Peter betrays. There's all this stuff happening. And and uh, and just before that, if you were with us a little bit before that, we were celebrating communion today, uh, a remembrance of Jesus celebrating with his disciples in the Last Supper, which was just before the passage we looked at last week. And in that supper, Jesus warns Judas that he will betray him. In fact, he says to all the disciples that they will all fall away from him, not just one. He says there's one, and then actually there's this moment where they all come up to communion. It's like, it's, it's like this moment, you're coming forward, and you come forward, and you're like, am I, am I the one? Am, am, I, am I the one? Surely, surely not me is what they say. And Judas comes forward and says the same thing. And then we see these stories unravel with Peter, James, and John, and with Judas. Uh, and Jesus gets to this place where he... He feels the sorrow to the point of death, is the phrase in that passage in the garden. And then Jesus is at this, it's really difficult spot because not only does he know that he's about to step into the most difficult thing he's ever done. Not only is he going to step into this place of the trial and the conviction and uh, being beaten and going to the cross. But at that moment, everybody leaves him. Everybody leaves him. And and, and I was so thankful for Greg's word last year, last week. And it's not, this is not exactly what he said, but 
This is what hit me when I listened to the message. Uh, Jesus loves us not despite our failures, but right smack dab in the middle of them. That's so good for me to hear. I hope that was good for you to hear, too. Like, it, it's not that Jesus is like, well, I guess I still love you even though you're a failure. Jesus loves you right in the middle of it. In fact, if you think about it, Jesus chooses failures over and over and over again. I mean, I'm a testament to that. I'm a, I'm a big failure and loser in a lot of places in life, and Jesus has continued to choose me to do things, and I don't understand why. Maybe a better way to say it is uh, Jesus, Jesus chooses people who fail. Because your identity is not that you're a failure, right? So we have to be careful about our words, right? So I need to be careful about it. We aren't failures, but we are certainly people who fail, and Jesus chooses people who fail. If you've, if you've read your Bible, you've seen this, right? Let me just give you a list. Adam, Eve, Cain, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, Rahab, the entire people of Israel, the people of Judah, right? All people who failed tremendously, and the list goes on and on and on. In fact, if you were to say, well, who are the successes that Jesus picked? And there's not a lot of them, right? Who are the really good people that Jesus picked? Right? He always picks people like, ah, that one needs work. <laughs> I think I'll use that one, right? There's incredible redemption. See, God's love doesn't depend on your perfection. God's acceptance doesn't depend on your perfection. The gifts that God gives to you don't depend on your perfection. God's blessings in life do not depend on your perfection. Now, for some of us, that's, that's really good to hear, but it's hard to hear. And we almost don't believe it. Because somebody in our life demanded perfection from us. Maybe many people. Maybe it was a mom or a dad. Maybe it was a boss. Maybe it was a neighborhood we grew up in. Or maybe it was a church we grew up in. Uh, For many of us, it was not necessarily those people. It was actually this person, right? We demanded perfection of ourselves. We we wanted more out of ourselves. And we thought, "I'm, I'm better than this. I know you've heard a different message from this pulpit than you need to be perfect. Greg preached it again last week, and we preached it so many times. God uses us as we are and invites us to become who he created us to be. We are never too far away to be used by God. It doesn't necessarily make the most sense to me. It may not make the most sense to you. You know, if I, I, I remember... I remember T-ball, and I remember soccer, and I remember playing with the kids in my neighborhood, and I remember being the last one picked, right? Because you picked the ones who were the best. You picked the ones who were going to get the goals, right? That's not how Jesus functions. And it's really important as we think about Christmas time. If you were here last year, you might remember we went through the genealogy of Jesus, and walk through all of that, right? Like, oh, look at, look at all the people who have failed here. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. Instead, God uses us as we are and invites us to become who he created us to be. Now, I don't mean to just be rehearsing what Greg did last week. See, he, he hit this really well. And there's more to the story. I'm going gonna, 
I'm going to kind of pick up where Greg left off and take it just a little bit further. I want to camp out a little longer on these stories of Peter and Judas and the sense of failure and God calling um, because it's really important to know that God is always working in the mess. It's Christmas. We recognize this, right? God sent his son from from the throne in heaven to where? To a manger and a smelly stable and a place, a guest house where there was no room uh, to be born to a virgin who was not yet married, but was connected to this middle aged man. And that they're going to spend this time together and then they end up being refugees in Egypt. Like that's how God decides to start the story in the middle of the mess. And maybe as you come into Christmas this year, as you come into this church today, maybe you've got a mess in your life. Maybe you've got a mess in your heart. Maybe you've got a mess in your family. And you're coming in and you're wondering, what can God do something with this? Before I go deeper into the scriptures this morning, I just want to start where Greg ended last time. I wonder if you remember this song. Some of you might remember this song from Third Day. It's the name of the band. It goes like this. I've chopped it up a little bit. I've heard it said that a man would climb a mountain just to be with the one he loves. I've heard it said that a man would swim the ocean just to be with the one he loves. How many times has he broken that promise? It has never been done. But then the words of Jesus. But I've climbed the highest mountain. I walked the hill to Calvary just to be with you. I'd do anything for you. In fact, I did do everything. There's not a price I would not pay just to be with you. I'd give anything. I would give my life away. See, that's the core of the story here at Christmas. That's the the end of the story that makes us so excited about the beginning of the story. Because grace takes a different turn when Jesus comes. Or maybe you've sung sang song, uh, Reckless Love, a bunch of times, right? There's no mountain I won't climb up, right? There's no fight I won't. I don't remember the exact words to that. To come after you, right? If you're not sure why you're here this morning, I want to make a blanket statement about why I think we're here. I think we're here this morning to be reminded or to hear for the first time, maybe, that the God of the universe, the God that held creation in his hands, the God that is perfect and holy and amazing, came to this earth. Just over 2,000 years ago, came to this earth as a baby to live a difficult human life filled with temptation, filled with disappointment, filled with death, filled with betrayal, and lived a life of sinless perfection in obedience when we couldn't. He climbed the hill. He gave his life because he loves you so much. And so before, like, maybe I bore you to death for the next little bit, I want to make sure that you know that at the beginning. Jesus loves you so much. And his love is so radical that he comes after you. Okay, let me start with a story, then we're going to jump into the the scripture this morning. Uh, Years ago, long time ago, uh, when I was in high school, so long time ago, uh, I was a diver, and I had been uh, in swimming for a long time with a bunch of my friends uh, since we were like seven years old. And at this point, I was a sophomore in high school, and uh, I had made the state meet for the very first time. And my friends, who had been in the state meeting my freshman year, I didn't make it that year, they were expecting me to get some points so that maybe we could win the state meet. And I was so geeked about it. Just a couple weeks before, I had learned a new dive, and I was nailing it. And it was helping me really to do well. Uh, it's a back one-and-a-half pike. And, uh, and so we get to the state meet, and we're, do, we're walking through these, and we've got uh, five dives, and then there's a cut. 
and then you go on from there, right? And so we get to the fifth dive, and I got the back one-and-a-half pike, and I'm going to nail this. I've been nailing it for weeks. It's been getting me lots of good points. And so I get up there on the diving board. I mean, I got good position. I take off up in the air, arms up, legs come back, pull my knees close, point my toes, come out, beautifully come out, and I look, and I see the ceiling. Which, if you know diving, and you're thinking of one-and-a-half back, like if you think, you're not supposed to see the ceiling at that moment, okay? Little trick. You're supposed to see the back wall. So I'm like this when I come out. And I remember, I think I hung there in the air for about three minutes. You know what I'm talking about? Like my mind went all over the place. Uh, and the next moment, uh, my feet hit the board. Yeah, I flipped. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, you know, flipped over, went under the water. And, and everybody's watching, Right. And they're expecting me to help, you know, and to get into the finals and all that kind of stuff. So now I'm underwater for 15 minutes, maybe. Right? Because what do you do at that moment, right? Like, everybody just watched me fail. I'd visualized it. I knew what it was supposed to be. I'd done it a whole bunch of times, and I failed right at that moment. Now, that's a funny story, right? But uh, what do you do when you fail? What's your moment? Right? Like there, I'm, I'm processing. I, I want to crawl out. I don't want anybody to see me. I want to withdraw. I want to hide. You know, what do you, what do you do in failure? I want you to think about where you failed in your life and how do you respond to that? We're going to look at the responses of failure this morning of Judas and Peter. A little bit of a long scripture this morning. Hang with me. This is uh, chapter 26. We're starting at verse 57. We're actually going to go into uh, chapter uh, 27, a little bit too, to verse 5. So just listen to this story. Uh, this is right after where Greg had us last week in the garden, and then Jesus has been arrested. Okay, uh, Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter, remember, Peter had just drawn the sword, cut the ear, done you know all that. Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him. And said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? And this is a little baby that came for you, right? Now being beaten, slapped, spit on. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. And this is where I want you to really pay attention. Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I I don't know the man. 
After a while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, which is what Jesus prophesied. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, pay attention again. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned. Now, now remember, Judas is the one that sold Jesus out and brought them to arrest, right? So what's going on in Judas here, right? When he, when he saw that he was, Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Okay, so I want to make the case this morning that uh, Matthew shows us two similar stories of two similar people with two very different endings. You with me? Two similar people with two very similar stories with very different endings. The story of Peter, always full of passion and zeal, right? He's the one, he's, you know, always first in, right? Full of passion and zeal. And Judas, the zealot. The story of Peter who betrays Jesus with his denial. The story of Judas who betrays Jesus with pieces of silver. The story of Peter who fails Jesus. The story of Judas who fails Jesus. The story of Peter who regrets his denial. The story of Judas who regrets his betrayal. Do you see the similarities? We'll dig into those a little bit. Let me start by telling you about how uh, these characters are similar. Uh, I grew up thinking that Judas, Judas was the bad guy, right? Uh, yeah, Peter messed up a little bit, but Judas is the bad guy. But really, you've got two bad guys in this story, and maybe more than that. Remember, Jesus said that they would all betray him at the Last Supper. Not just Judas. In fact, when Judas comes, he says, you'll all betray me. And they didn't know if they were the ones, right? Actually, first he says, one of you will betray me. So they all come up and they say, surely not me. Then he sends Judas on his way when he comes up. Then he says, you will all fall away from me. And then Peter insists, no, not me. In fact, uh, here's what the disciples uh, say. They, uh, They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. And then Jesus says, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Speaking of Judas. You see, nobody thinks they're the one. In fact, I'm not sure Judas thinks he's the one at this point. I mean, that's not sure. We'll play with that a little bit. But notice, Jesus has Judas come to communion. Judas comes to the table. And he dips in the cup. Judas partakes on that. Nobody thinks they're a betrayer. And Jesus says, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. Every single one of you who came to communion today, everyone that came to the Lord's Supper, you're all, surely not me. Well, actually, all, all of you. I know I said one of you, uh, but all of you will as well. Each one of them comes to Jesus and says, surely you don't mean me. And eventually he says, yep, actually, every one of you is going to fall away. So here's a question I want to ask you this morning to wrestle with. A question that came to my mind as I was studying. Who's the betrayer in the story? 
I've always thought, well, for sure it's Judas, right? Because Jesus sends Judas on his way. And I think that's true because he's called the betrayer several other times. But who really is the betrayer in the story? Isn't everybody the betrayer in the story? Doesn't everybody fall away? Doesn't Peter deny several times? We automatically think about Judas, but there's much more going on here. Jesus is, Jesus is left by all of them. Judas, um, let me tell you a little bit about Judas a minute. Judas is known as Judas uh, Iscariot. Uh, his last name is said over and over and over again. And we're not sure why. And scholars are not sure what Iscariot means. Uh, but there's a group of zealots uh, that carried what's called a sakari, which is a dagger. And they were known as assassins. They were revolutionaries. You see, Jerusalem, all of Judea was under the authority of Rome at this time. And there were zealots who wanted to bring it back for the Jews, right? They wanted to take it back. And these assassins... Uh, were sometimes called the Sicarii. So probably Judas was one of the Sicarii in some way. Judas of the Iscariot is probably what Iscariot means. And so Judas has this idea in his head that Jesus is leading a revolution, which he is. But Judas thinks it's a different kind of revolution. Judas probably thinks that they're going to fight against Rome and they're going to take Jerusalem back. In fact, he's probably quite confused at Palm Sunday when all the stuff happens and Jesus doesn't come out fighting, right? They have the Lord's Supper, and then Jesus tells them, go, do what you're going to do. What if, conjecture here, what if Judas goes to do what he thinks Jesus wants him to go do? What if Judas thinks somebody else is a betrayer and he's supposed to help start the revolution? What if Judas brings the mob to get the fight started? In fact, Judas probably isn't the only one who thought this. Probably most of the disciples, we see them uh, confused about this all the time. Jesus, is now the time when you're going to come into your kingdom? Right? Jesus, is now the time? And then every time he speaks peace, every time he doesn't fight, they don't get it. They respond. They, they want Jesus to do something. And I want to take you to a, a passage that's, that may confuse you a little bit, but I'm going to, I'm going to bring you to a passage uh, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, when I sent you out without, without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag. Purse would have had money in it and supplies, those things. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. This is Jesus talking to his disciples, right? If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Now, I don't have a clue what Jesus is saying there, and I don't think they did either. And then they respond this way. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, Jesus replied. There are two swords, at least, in the company of the disciples. And Jesus tells them to take them with them. So if I'm Judas, again, this I'm not... I'm not sure this is going on, but I'm pretty sure. If I'm Judas and Jesus says, get the swords, get the bags, we're going into Jerusalem. Now we go in on Palm Sunday. I think we're starting the revolution, right? We're going to overthrow the Romans. We've been waiting for the Messiah to come and start the revolution. And then it doesn't start. And Jesus says, wait, I didn't come for this. And then they have the Lord's Supper. And Jesus talks about betrayal. And Judas comes up and he says, now, Judas, go do what you're going to do. And there's a whole prophecy in Zechariah about all of this, that I think Judas saw himself as a key figure in the history of the Jews, and he's going to help start the revolution. 
And so he goes off to bring people to Jesus to get the fight started. Well, you've got Judas, you've got Peter. Let's go to Peter in the garden for just a moment. Peter in the garden, Judas comes up, betrays the kiss. You've got the mob and you've got Jesus. We're itching for a fight, aren't we? Jesus, is now the time you're going to come into your kingdom? You told us a while back to have the swords, right? Is now the time? So Peter pulls a sword. Makes sense, doesn't it? Now's the, now's the time we're stepping in. Peter pulls the sword. And Jesus is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I wonder, were Judas and Peter and maybe all the disciples itching for a fight and just waiting for Jesus to start it? And even after the Lord's Supper, they don't realize that Jesus is a different kind of Messiah. Did they, did they misunderstand that he was a nonviolent, surrender-based, sacrifice-laden, silence-in-the-face-of-innocence kind of Messiah? I think so. I think so. I think Peter and Judas both missed it, and they both fail. But, but notice this. If that's the case, which I think it is, I think we can make a good case for that. Both of them intended what they thought was good. They were intending the right thing. They were trying to follow Jesus. They were trying to follow the Messiah. They just misunderstood the plan. Well, more than that. And then they misunderstood the kind of person Jesus was. But they also misunderstood the plan, and they got ahead of Jesus. And and this is what happens usually when you get ahead of Jesus. You end up going the wrong way, right? I do, anyway. If I get ahead of Jesus, I take the wrong path. I think that's what happened with Judas and Peter. They're not so different. Both of them totally get it wrong. Both of them are trying to usher in the kingdom and help Jesus with that, but both of them totally get it wrong. I wonder, have you ever tried to do something right? Like you put all in (laughs) and you got it wrong? I'm going to do the right thing here and you get behind it, you do all the stuff and it's still the wrong thing. You had the right intentions. You thought you had the right understanding, but you got it totally wrong. This usually happens when you buy your spouse a gift without talking to them about it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, you ever had those kind of intentions? You've got it wrong, you fail. Well, let's, let's go back to the question I asked you earlier about when you failed in the past. Maybe, maybe it's not because you didn't try. I mean, did I try to nail that dive? Yeah, I did. Did I try to make it to the finals? Yeah, I did. We fail because we're human. We fail because we're sinners. We fail because we aren't perfect. Even if we have good intentions, we often get it wrong. Even when we give it our best, sometimes our best just isn't good enough. Have you ever tried to help someone and you end up hurting them instead? I've done that. Tried to be good news and end up being bad news? I I, I I didn't mean to. The question is not whether you fail or not. The question is, what happens when you fail? What happens inside of you when you fail, when you sin? When you get it wrong. You see, here's where Judas and Peter take different roads. Here's a similarity. They, they, I'm going to give you a similarity, but then a, a divergence that they take. Let me take you to the passage of Judas again. When Judas had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. Do you see that? That's your responsibility. Like, you're the one who screwed up. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. 
And he went away and hanged himself. Now contrast that with Peter. There's similarities and differences. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Notice, and he went outside and wept bitterly. You see, both of them know they failed. Both of them have remorse. Both of them probably shed tears during that moment. We, do, we know that Peter did. More than likely, Judas did too. But something, something different happens here. Peter, Peter does feel, it seems like Judas feels, and Peter walks away. In fact, later in the story, um, the angels come to, to tell the disciples that Jesus is risen. And they say this. It's really important. Tim showed me this this week from South Harbor. Uh, says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter to go ahead to Galilee and I'll meet them there. Why and Peter? Because I think the way Peter deals with failure, he realizes he's failed. And he stops following because he doesn't think he's worthy anymore. Now Judas doesn't think he's worthy either, right? But here's where the paths diverge. Though both of them are feeling shame, though both of them are feeling disappointment in themselves, though both of them are feeling remorse, though both of them wish they could go back and change it, something is different about Peter. See, I don't, I don't mean to say anything about, I don't want to say much about suicide today. It's in the story. Uh, I don't want to say anything theologically about it, but what I do notice in the story of Judas is that Judas believes at this point that he is unredeemable. Actually, I think Peter thinks he's unredeemable too, but he leaves the door open. Judas doesn't leave the door open. He cannot recover from his failure. His failure becomes so strong, his remorse is so strong that he cannot recover. To Judas, his actions are unforgivable. He is unredeemable. And so he ends the story. Peter pulls back for sure. Peter withdraws for sure. In fact, he's probably not a disciple anymore, but Jesus doesn't let that happen. Right? Jesus goes after him. If you know the story, Jesus ends up restoring him. You see, where the paths diverge here is how we respond to our failure. Because we all fail, whether we intend to or not. Sometimes we make huge mistakes on purpose. Sometimes we make huge mistakes when we don't intend to. The question is, what happens when your sins get a hold of you? And you get to the point where you think you're unredeemable. Sometimes forgiveness is cheapened. And we forget that there's a long distance between who we could be and who we are. And there's this this distance between who we were intended to be, who we see ourselves as, and who we really are. And where the paths of Peter and Judas diverge is in this moment between failure and forgiveness. You see, there's a gap between our failure and the possibility of forgiveness. And Judas sees that gap as too big. It can never be crossed. And it's this moment that I want to camp on and end on. It's this moment that matters. We're not talking about failing on a dive uh, in a state meet this morning. We're not talking about making a meal and the meal not going well, right? 
We're talking about the bigger failures in our lives. The bigger failures that feel unredeemable, where there is a chasm between who we should be and who we are. The failure and the forgiveness are far apart from one another. And I wonder this morning what happens in your heart in that moment between failure and forgiveness, because it is the most important moment. Because here's what Jesus does. You have to see this in the story. Jesus never, never, never rejects any of them. In fact, Jesus knows what Judas is going to do and says, come to communion. Jesus doesn't reject them. I don't care how far your failure brings you from God. I don't care how far you failed. You are not too far from the grace of Jesus. The grace of Jesus fills the space between your failure and the perfection that he calls you to. This morning, we're going to celebrate communion. And one of the beautiful things about communion is that the grace of Jesus is a reminder to us in this moment that no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, you are not too far from grace. Whether you're Judas, whether you're Peter, whether you're one of the other disciples, whether you've let God down in huge ways, whether you've let yourself down, Jesus says something like this. This is not a scripture. This is kind of a paraphrase of mine. My grace, my love, my forgiveness are what makes it possible to move forward even in your greatest moments of failure. Your greatest moments of failure are not too big for Jesus. This morning, Jesus invites you to come back to him. Maybe you're like Peter and you've stepped away and you said, I don't deserve to be a disciple. What I've done and how I failed, I don't deserve his grace. And Jesus says, hey, come, eat at my table. Peter, come, become a fisher of men again, become a disciple again. I don't know what it is in your life that keeps you between, keeps you far away from God, but whatever that chasm is, God's grace fills that forgiveness place. Uh, in a minute, we're going to share communion. And I, I want you to ponder this morning, God, where, where have I failed you and how have you loved me? Where, where have I failed you and how have you loved me and brought me back home? Because just like Peter wasn't too far, you're not too far either. And my prayer is that you receive the grace of the Lord Jesus as you come this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, as much as it seems uh, a strange prayer, I thank you for the failures of your disciples. Because if I were to read the scriptures and see perfection all the time, I, I wouldn't feel like I belong. And yet, God, you say that each of us belongs. Paul reflects on this later and says that there is nothing that can separate us from your love. Even Peter, who denies Jesus, even Judas, who betrays Jesus, cannot be separated from your love. God, thank you for loving us this morning. If there are any of us here this morning that doubt that love, I pray, Father, that your spirit would bring a comforting voice into our hearts, that you would draw us to the table this morning, and that as we partake of your body and your blood, that we would be reminded that we are not too far from grace and that your grace fills the space between who we wish we were and who we are. That your grace fills the space between our failure and our best selves. That your grace and your love cover us and that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Jesus. Amen.